Welcome to Neuroethics Today, a science and society podcast about emerging ethical and societal implications of neuroscience research and neurotechnology. In this show, we'll interview experts in the fields of neuroscience, neuroethics, and neurotechnologies. We will highlight pressing questions, discuss thought-provoking ideas, and raise awareness on the importance of neuroethics in our daily lives. Keep listening to Get Curious and Critical. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Neuroethics Today. Today with me is a very special guest, Professor Jonathan Moreno. He is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, He is the author of several books, uh, including the book titled Mind Wars, Um, where brain science uh, in relation to the military is discussed, and in particular, the ethical implications of that. He is the um, investigator of a million-dollar project on artificial intelligence and warfighter enhancement, and a senior consultant on a million-euro project on Cold War medical science, which is funded by the European Research Councils. I am very happy, Professor Marina, to have you with me here um, and to discuss together some of the ethical implications of neurotechnologies in in military uses and uh, in particular in dual use. If, if, if we may begin, how would you describe dual use um, and in particular in neuroscience and neurotechnology? Well, Catherine, first, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, and I'm, um, I'm flattered to be uh, on the same podcast as you had my former postdoc and now colleague at Penn, Anna Wexler, since the secret of life is you get to be a senior professor is to have uh, postdocs who are smarter than you are. And <laughs> so uh, I'm really, uh, really happy to be with you. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the dual use uh, problem is kind of a universal problem in, in science uh, and uh, in technology. Um, I'm thinking, you know, obviously about uh, the way that um, the legend has it that, that uh, Prometheus received fire and we know that didn't, you know, go so well for Prometheus. Um, and we've had this experience, of course, with uh, nuclear weapons uh, and um, more recently with cyber uh, now, I think increasingly with this a convergence, what I see as a convergence uh, between uh, AI and neuroscience, uh, neuro- neurotechnologies. So, you know, if you, if you think about these things uh, in, a, in a civil-minded way, as I tend to do, because I'm not a, a scientist or, or an engineer, but a philosopher and historian, um, you can almost think about a four-celled situation, right, where um, you have... Uh, on, say in one cell, uh, civilian benign uses of a technology. Uh, on the in, on the right hand, uh, upper right hand, you have military benign uses, and then on the lower uh, two, you have military malign and civilian malign. Mm-hmm. And that's a very simple-minded four-cell system, right? Of civilian, military, benign, malign. Um, and, and so, uh, a way to think about this is, you know, think about. Um, Think about Skynet in the Terminator movies. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, what turned out, what was civilian benign, turns out to be a military malign. Uh, um, or think about uh, robotic surgery. Robotic surgery is civilian benign and 
largely, I would say, you know, potentially in, the, in battlefield conditions. If you ever had robots out there doing surgeries with surgeons, uh, a military benign, but, um, you know, you're also uh, making people better so that they go back into the battlefield, right, which may not be such a, such a great thing, but that's what routinely happens in military medicine. Um, or surveillance, right? Now, surveillance can be in, every, in all of these four cells, right? It can be uh, civilian benign uh, with respect to public health and, you know, where is the virus or, or their most recent subvariant of the virus. Um, but it can also very much be maligned, both in civilian and military terms. Uh, think about uh, when I came back from, I was just in Germany uh, a few days ago, and when I came back in for the first time um, to get through immigration in the U.S., all they needed was my uh, my facial scan. They didn't uh, take my fingerprints oh, wow. uh, as or, or a print of my uh, uh, passport, as had been in the case in the past. Uh, so, um, you know, and as a piece of paper reminded me when it came out of the machine, I'd given permission for my facial image to be used uh, yeah. by this to get me through immigration in the U.S. faster than everybody else. So um, I think a dual use happens in so many different ways. Now, just to take a, a, uh, a neurotechnology uh, example, <clears throat> um, when I was finishing Mind Wars, uh, Happily for me, when I was writing the introduction, this is back in 2005, um, I discovered that there was an exchange maybe a year before that I hadn't noticed in Nature. Um, Nature had published an editorial called The Silence of the Neuroengineers, in which um, the writer comes down pretty heavy on neuroscientists and and, and, and engineers who do work for the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, the violence of the neuroengineers, another dramatic. So um, an issue or two later, uh, the highly regarded chief scientist for the, the U.S.'s uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which people you know, know as DARPA, uh, responded uh, quite angrily, said, look, um, the work we're doing is not only you know, good for uh, conflict, and by the way, we should defend free societies uh, if we need to, um, but it could also have civilian uses. And I have to say that I associated that with my experience uh, as the son of a woman who had a, uh, an amputation uh, for cancer mm-hmm. when she was uh, and uh, lost her right arm at the clavicle. Um, my mother lived for another 59 years uh, as an amputee of the right arm. Yeah. Uh, but she was a very functional amputee of the right arm. And she was never able to use a prosthetic. Um, now, you know, Bill, we get to the point where it's actually plausible to disseminate uh, high-end prosthetic arms to lots of people, both civilians and soldiers. Uh, I don't know. Not, I, don't, I, I can't. Uh, I'm not as... A, I'm not going out on a limb like Elon Musk would. Um, We can do that because I'm not trying to raise money for my company. (laughs) Um, uh, But, um, you know, I think this dual use problem is a great, is this a terrible problem? And so one way, you know, to try to manage the problem of dual use is uh, to get out in front of the technology. So before you use it um, or immediately in the aftermath of your, of the, of acting as the first mover, you explain what the rules were uh, under which you did this. Thing. Um, so think about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? We, mm-hmm. we in the U.S. explained what the rules were, right? We did not explain our rationale, um, and so we were we had we had no 
we, the United States, have no uh, moral leverage with respect to uh, the way that the Soviet Union developed first the the, uh, the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb and so forth. And we've seen this repeatedly in emerging technologies in geopolitics. Um, targeted munitions in the 90s in the first Gulf War, right? Uh, cyberspace and um, our, uh, our attacks uh, on the Iranian um, nuclear facilities to cyber. Um, and, and this is not a question of justification, right? This is a question of setting up the rules so that uh, your competitors uh, understand at least your rationale yeah. uh, and pre- translating these rules as, as we've been able to do in a few areas like biological and toxin weapons and chemical weapons, translating those rules into uh, treaties. So um, dual use happens all over the place. We can give very provocative examples in neuroscience, just about everything in neuroscience and neurotechnology could be dual use, taken into account. Um, And and recognizing we live in the real world, right? This is practical ethics, uh, not a a seminar on the metaphysics of morals. but how do we then manage? And I think of human beings as mainly, you know, as managers. Uh, and management doesn't always go well. Um, you know, we, as we say in, in, or, in ordinary English, uh, I managed to get a, a, the soup on my tie. Uh, that's not a good form of management. Right? Yeah. What, 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 yeah. Would you, what would you say makes neuroscience research in particular very appealing to uh, agencies or national security agencies why neuroscience in particular yeah i mean commanders have always found that um the human being is the is the strongest link in the chain uh, but also the weakest link in the chain um strongest in in terms of ingenuity and spontaneity and and courage, you know, hopefully short of foolhardiness in the, in the battlefield. Um, but and, and different militaries, as, as I'm sure you know, have different approaches to how centralized decision making should make that should be. Um, for example, the Russians have a very centralized decision making system in, com- in combat that's not been so good for them uh, in the Ukraine war. Mm-hmm. Uh, Americans tend to have a pretty decentralized view of local commanders making decisions. Um, and that's that's the setting in which you really try to take advantage of the best that human beings have to offer in conflict. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, human beings um, often don't respond well. They don't respond well in the sense of doing their jobs uh, because of fear, uh, because of distraction, because of fatigue, um, because they haven't eaten very well, uh, because for very various reasons their morale may be shattered, and they're you know, and they rape and pillage. So. As we've also seen in in, in Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, so um, um, the the appeal of, of neurotechnology in principle, and I underline in principle because I think you know, very little of the stuff that we talk about, frankly, it, from in, in science fiction or in the neuroscience literature, is going to be actually deployed. Yeah. Um, but in in principle, if you can if you can um, if you can expand on those favorable qualities that are linked to the brain and central nervous system of a human being. And you can get, and this is quite important, I think, Catherine, because it's neglected. We pick at individual super soldiers. We need to think about teams yeah. and the way that the, those personalities that are operating on a biological and neurobiological basis in their own ways uh, interact with each other. Um, and I think, I do think, incidentally, that 
fascinated as you and I are by neuroscience in various human social settings, including our armed conflict. Um, we do forget these days, I think we get so caught up in the, in the gadgets that we do tend to forget uh, the, the human level of, of social interaction. What in the military is often called unit cohesion. Um, so uh, it, it's this, this notion that you can uh, somehow improve the, the capacities of warfighters, uh, both as individuals, but also as members of teams. And that you can do that by understanding what's going on in their brains and, uh, and enhancing it in various ways. Um, and then and pulling out data from their brains as they're having experiences that could help them manage themselves and the machines they interact with or, you know, kind of machine, uh, brain machine interface. Yeah. That's 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 very interesting. Of course, of course, yeah. Sometimes even obvious that that you know the military wants to create this super soldier, this this uh, super team to 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 fight wars and and be resilient against the the consequences that a war has. But now this is something that has been you know troubling me for a while, especially that I also am studying you know the molecular biology of post traumatic stress disorder. When it comes to research funding into a particular neuroscience research, is is that often uh, if it's if we're talking about military funding, is that often a, a secretive endeavor? And and if so, why is it as such? Why do military funding into neuroscience research is it not always spoken about publicly uh, um, and and informing the public about such uh, interest? Right. I think, you know, the problem here is I know the numerator and not the denominator, right? Yeah. And, and um, unless you have a very high clearance, you probably don't either. Um, however, unlike, you know, think about the atomic bomb project and, and compare that to say something that we're not talking about so much today, like the human genome project, mm -hmm. right? The atomic bomb project was the Manhattan project. Or the code word was the Manhattan engineer district was a, was a heavily compartmentalized effort so that thousands and thousands of people around the U.S. were working on the project, but they didn't know, you know, they had different pieces of the elephant in hand, right? Yeah. And they didn't know exactly what it added up. Very few people knew exactly what was going on, uh, what the goal was. Um, it, it was not at all transparent. The, some of the basic science, I mean, if you go back to uh, Einstein's earliest papers on relativity, right, they, they were public, um, but... Um, But the, the project itself was not. Now, compare that to the Genome Project, which was radically transparent. Um, and, and interestingly, and a global project, right? Mm -hmm. um, even though, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of science, the, the, the genetics that could be done in other, other parts of the world um, wasn't as advanced as it is now. It was mostly a U.S. project. But still, there was, there was international contribution to the British, the French, and so forth. Um, so, um, but, but in the case of the, The Genome Project, people weren't thinking mainly about the possibilities for conflict. Right? Um, they were thinking mainly about healthcare. But you and I well know that genetics is, can be a critical part of armed conflict. Um, it's just a, a whole lot more subtle uh, than, the, than, than, the, than the atom bomb. Um, so um, the point is that you have to look case by case at what science you're talking about uh, with respect to how 
important it is or how plausible it is that things could be secret. Um, if you just uh, look at um, the, the U.S. Um, science agencies in the defense and uh, national security and intelligence settings, like DARPA and IARPA and the Naval Research Lab and so forth, they're working with, with um, information that, is, that has been published. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the transition point comes when uh, a, um, an agency that could be an intelligence agency, it could be uh, a part of one of the agencies in the armed forces, tries to uh, implement it in a way that can be used in a field. Um, and um, very little of that actually happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for all of the, all of the, you know, DARPA is not a, I mean, you know, the three billion plus a year, uh, but still that's barely a rounding error in the, in the U.S. Uh, defense budget. Um, very little of that that they've done has, any, has turned out to be, you know, anything that's been actually put into practice. Um, in fact, um, in, in Mind Wars, I, I go back to look at the um, 2009 Army Opportunities in Neuroscience report done by the National Academies. I wasn't part of that report. Uh, but you know, they make predictions uh, about stuff that's on the shelf that could be deployed within five or ten years, like, like, um, like sensors in helmets yeah. uh, to identify threat. Right? Um, well, that hasn't happened. Um, and, and, and it hasn't happened for a number of reasons, including that um, you know, some some quartermaster looks at it and says, "Well, you know, how does it really help me?" Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, there, there are other ways that I can that I can figure out how a man or a woman in the field is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really put sensors in their helmets. And by the way, um, I then I also need all kinds of backup to maintain that equipment that I don't know how to get out there. It's, it's, it goes, it's not practical. In other it's words, not practical. And it, it's not practical. And many of these things. Um, uh, many of these things uh, are addressing problems that can be addressed in simpler ways and in less expensive ways and in more reliable ways. Um, so I, I do think we have a tendency to exaggerate how much of this is going to get out there, even though the, the, this, the, the science is amazing, right? And the engineering is amazing. You just think about um, the wireless brain machine interface right, that's being done now. That's a, a, a tremendous advance over what people were able to do in the lab with with people with tetraplegia like this 15, 17 years ago, so they started following this stuff. Um, in, you know, in, in 2008, I was at uh, a meeting on, I guess it was on emerging battlefield technologies uh, at, the, at the Royal Dutch Navy in Amsterdam. I gave uh, one of my early talks about, about Mind Wars stuff, um, and one of the other people on the, uh, at the program was a fellow who had just retired as the author of doctrine for the British Royal Navy. And afterwards I said to him, sort of what I just said to you, which is, gee, there's a, you know, we Americans, we love gadgets. Um, what about you Brits? Yeah. Uh, and he said, he said, first of all, um, you've got all the money. <laughs> right? And second of all, if they work, you give them to us. Which I thought was marvelous. Yeah. Um, so we, we, you know, we, we're spending a whole bunch of money on these things. Um, very few of which will actually have a practical payoff in the field. Now, can I, I just say one thing about post-traumatic stress disorder? This is a fabulous example of dual use, right? Because yeah. if we can figure out how to use um, technologies that uh, right into the brain in some way, you know, like like TM, like transcranial bank simulation uh, or other technologies or, or, or pharmaceuticals, right? 
um, well, that'd be wonderful for everybody who has a form of, of, of post-traumatic stress. Uh, and that, by the way, includes pretty much everybody who's come out of the pandemic right now. Yeah. We're all, we're all uh, in some ways, we don't fully understand experiencing what it's been like for the last two or three years and, on, and ongoing because we're not done with this thing yet. Um, so um, how, do we, you know, how do we turn off a particular, very lucrative source of new knowledge um, when, you know, geopolitically, um, it's very hard to see the alternative. I think I think one thing that that I that I came across in your book, which I never thought of as such, is that most military uh, uh, neuroscience research actually benefits the public and citizens, which which is something I never thought about. Because when I th think of military uh, neuroscience research, or if I think I, I immediately think of. Uh, um, um, you know, the negative consequences that this might carry. I always think of, okay, war and, and, and creating super soldiers. While in fact, as you said, um, actually many, many times this military uh, uh, research is actually being investigated possibly also to, to you know, to, to combat a disorder such as post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which is something that we don't typically always think of um, for, as a first instance. Um, which, which brings me to my next question, which is, um, is it ethical, in your opinion, to take advantage of neuroscience research for military purposes and vice versa, to actually use military uh, uh, research for Uh, uh, um, really public uh, 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 mental health, let's say, uh, purposes? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a, um, an answer that is somewhat out of a different uh, part of the field um, of human experience. So in the late 1980s, uh, people in bioethics started raising the question as the Holocaust experiments, the concentration camp experiments became more well-known. Uh, whether uh, it's acceptable to use any knowledge that actually could be useful that came out of those experiments in, in normal medical care, or whether the knowledge itself was so tainted that it should not be used. And so without getting into the details, um, there was a, uh, a meeting of survivors and rabbis and philosophers and other theologians uh, in at the University of Minnesota. Uh, and the consensus was that if that knowledge uh, could be used to help future people who are suffering, it should be used. But uh, that if, it, it, if it's published, uh, it should never be uh, cited the way you give normal citations in a scientific paper. Yeah. That, it, that the source of the information, the source of the knowledge should be identified as a memorial to the suffering of the victims. Um, and, and so... You know, I think without, I think one doesn't need to be a utilitarian, a strict utilitarian, to think that this, the source of knowledge as, uh, as, as relevant as it is, uh, also needs to be seen as, uh, as uh, a product of an endeavor uh, that, uh, although it was not intended to help uh, people uh, who are suffering, but rather as a weapon of a sort. Uh, that it could be used to do that. And it's, look, it's so hard, you know, just as somebody who's been observing scientists, particularly uh, people in the life sciences for 40 years, uh, it is so hard to do what you guys do. <laughs> it is so hard to get new knowledge that could be helpful. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, the thought of not using it, I think, is is in its own way also repulsive. Yeah. Uh, not as repulsive in many cases as the ways it was gained, for sure. Um, but still, that we should not use it, I, I, I just, I, I can't quite, wrap, I could never quite wrap my head around the notion that we, that we can't, but we need to see it as, as, um, uh, as part of the human story and the fact that much of what human beings have accomplished ain't, ain't pretty. Yeah. But then should there, should there be enough awareness that, for example, certain neuroscientific findings are backed up by military uh, uh, funding? And the reason I ask that is because, which is also something that I accidentally learned. So, of course, yeah. we all know the Brain Initiative. And yeah. um, we also know uh, that it is partly funded by the uh, American Defense and Intelligence Organizations. Should there be enough awareness, not only for researchers that are conducting a certain uh, um, uh, research under the Brain Initiative, but also the citizens, that they're that they're you know that this kind of neuroscientific research is also funded and probably is 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 of interest to organizations such as the Defense and Intelligence Organizations. Yeah, and, and indeed, uh, it, there there should be such disclosure. It's one of the reasons I wrote Mind Wars, is because. Um, I started noticing that um, so many papers that were published, both in sort of high prestige, you know, one one word journals like Nature and Science and, and so forth, uh, had funding sources like that, and also sort of softer articles in uh, in in more popular science journals and science magazines, you know, had that kind of funding. And I, I said, well, how come nobody has um, connected the dots here? Uh, because then you can see what at a very high level uh, people in the national security world are interested in with respect to emerging technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, yeah, so absolutely. Uh, and, you know, they, in general, I think people, first of all, people are required to disclose their funding sources if they're right. But um, if they're, if they're, if their experiment is directly funded by an agency, they, they, they have to disclose. Um, what's a little trickier is that people can have, long-term programs with various funding sources and and um if they're not referring to a particular experiment with a specific national security agency funder they might they might kind of elude uh a lot of inspection right about yeah. the the general program of their work and I, i have seen people being a little i think too cute about this um but i think people do have to disclose. Look, I'm doing a project right now, as you mentioned, that's Defense Department funded by the Minerva Research Initiative, mm -hmm. which is mainly a science, uh, a social science funder. About they have about 22 million dollars a year, which is really nothing uh, uh, for in in the Defense Department context. And I, of course, am disclosing that. Uh, um, and you know, people can take uh, take a look at the products of what this we will be doing in this project. And decide whether we've been unduly influenced. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think we have. Um, but similarly, you know, I've just um, become a member of a new bioethics council for Bayer Global, uh, and you know, we're disclosing that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is really hard because you, you operate in a, in a in in a setting in which, if you want to do practical ethics, and, and I've struggled with this for for many years. Um, You know, do, are you going to 
try to have a seat at the table? Um, or are you going to keep your seat in the seminar room alone? Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, I will say it's, those decisions are not easy ones, um, to make. Depends what kind of career you want to have. Um, but it seems to me that in the world in which we live, you don't only want people who are, are full-time employees of these agencies to be making the decisions, right? Or people in, only in uniform as, as well intended as they might be. Of course. Uh, you have to, you have to get people like me, uh, at, in the room. And, um, then I have, then any, any products I have have to be, uh, have to be open to inspection. Definitely. Those are, those are definitely great self-reflective questions that I think every, every agency, but also every scholar and researcher needs to, needs to ask themselves. Now, if we move more towards, um, you know, the ethics of human enhancement, we know this is a major topic and one with, with contradictory opinions. So uh, some people believe that we should enhance a human uh, cognition, while others believe it is absolutely absurd. Now, in your book, Mind Wars, you, you state that national security agencies Um, are aiming or one of their aims is to use neuroscience research to somehow create, um, you know, those super soldiers. Is, is this something that, you know, we as, as a scientific community, but not only a scientific community, as a members of, of, of society, is this something we should be okay with, such an endeavor? Yeah, so, I mean, I think when people use terms like super soldiers, which I undoubtedly have been using myself, um, that we, we tend to exaggerate uh, what, what, what is plausible, as I said before. Um, I think, you know, what is most plausible in, in, the, in this domain is not uh, necessarily biological enhancement and, um, and, or, even, uh, or even implants. I think that's something that people are excited about in theory, but I, uh, I'm not sure, it, again, it, that it really solves the problem uh, without creating more problems. Um, But I think I think a brain machine interaction is uh, is plausible is plausible, uh, and um, um, if they are if they are not implants, but um, uh, if they are circuits that work uh, in a helmet or on the surface of the skull, then we will uh, I think possibly see that. Um, should we be uh, alarmed or concerned about that? Well, yeah, <laughs> we should be we should be alarmed and concerned about every new technology that's used in non-conflict because it, it tends to create an arms race. Yeah. Uh, and there's no, there's, there's not a case of a plausible, uh, of a plausible technology for uh, conflict uh, that has not seen you know, peer competitors working to get ahead of the other side. So um, I do think we have to be concerned about it. I'm, I'm at the, you know, recently I'm, really uh, preoccupied with the way that neurotechnologies and autonomous weapons uh, along with the two AI systems yeah. uh, will change the nature of combat. Uh, and the problem is that um, well, there's so many problems, but among the problems is that, um, you know, why we, we might think of fantasizing about uh, robots fighting robots and that's the end of it. Uh, that's not the way it will end. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, we're kind of drawn back to this question that we talked about a while ago, which is um, how isn't it important for the first mover to set the rules? And, um, you know, at the moment, I'm very worried that um, 
in the case of, of the of the war in Ukraine, that there are different standards uh, with respect to uh, the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Right now, we're not talking about um, lethal autonomous weapons in this setting that we could be, um, and the fact that there are, are that there are, are different doctrines, different triggers for the use of tactical nuclear weapons between uh, the, the West and Russia is a, of great concern to me at the moment. Um, so, you know, we have to we have to get some agreement about what the what the rules are uh, in order to in order to operate in a in a setting in which there isn't you know a, a sudden uh, expansion of the conflict uh, that becomes uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. But when we get back to the sort of these enhancement technologies in neurotechnology, I, you know, I, I don't see that scale of danger. I'm, I'm still more, much more worried about the thousands of nuclear warheads that are armed or could be armed uh, in, within hours uh, than I am about brain technologies. The brain technologies are so fascinating because they are, in some important sense, you know, they constitute us, right? Uh, uh, and they do have the potential to revise our relationship to machines um, and, and change us in that relationship as well. Um, but, you know, if you ask me when I wake up in the morning, what am, am I most worried about uh, with respect to the way that uh, human beings manage to cause suffering to other human beings, it's not brain technology. It's not yet. Okay. But do you imagine in the, in the foreseeable future that, neurotechnology will be the next arms race? I mean, I think it, I, to some degree if that's already happened. Um, I mean, we don't know exactly um, what, uh, what, what the PRC, the People's Republic of China, is doing or what their goals are in, in their brain, uh, in their big brain project. Um, but, um, you know, I think it, 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 it's quite reasonable to suppose that Uh, and they you know, talked about this in some in some way in public that you know everybody who's involved in this is interested in a mechanistic understanding of the brain and central nervous system, um, and obviously that can be tremendously useful in the setting of of psychotherapy, right, uh, or managing PTSD, which is you know one of your main interests. Um, but uh, it could also be used to exacerbate problems or to create problems. So. Uh, this is the you know we again we're taken back to the to dual use um, and the uh, the likelihood that every every uh, military power that has some ability to do neuroscience is going to is looking at neuroscience in this way and that is a something we need to worry about um, there are people who are, are trying to bring uh, brain science into conversations in in Geneva. Um, That's really hard. Uh, it's always hard, and it's especially hard in this context because you know we're talking about so many different possibilities, right? And how do you how do you get your arms around all the possible ways that neuroscience can could be used? Um, but I, I, I again, I think that insofar as what everybody is interested in is again a mechanistic understanding of the way the brain and central nervous system work, then you know, you're always liable to the dual use problem. 
almost everyone I I talked to, and especially on the previous episodes uh, um, of Neuroethics Today, um, every time we discuss about a certain neurotechnology and we want to touch upon, you know, the dual use aspects, almost everyone responds with, um, oh yeah, that's that's a different story. That's a that's a more complicated story, especially when it comes to reg- regulation. Is that is that something that you also, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, believe or or agree? Is is when it comes to you know regulation of uh, neurotechnology uses for military purposes? Is is this something that is uh, uh, difficult to regulate and 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 write policies about? I mean, in the military setting, it it, it, it has to involve uh, bilateral, multilateral treaties. Um, in the in the so that I mean that's a kind of regulatory setting, but that's not usually the, the sense of regulatory that people you and I are talking about. Um, so we're talking about the FDA, right? Or we're we're talking about the European regulators, Japanese regulators. Um, and a problem here is that to so use the word enhancement before, um, problem is that. Although there is a lot of writing about enhancement in the bioethics world, the neuroethics world, in fact, it you know you, you can't you can hardly wave your your hand at a paper on neuroethics and and not encounter the word enhancement. Uh, that's enhancement is not a term that's used by regulators. Right? Regulators uh, talk about risk and benefit, uh, and I think this is this is something that's occurred to me just really in the last few months, Catherine. That um, there's a there's a void in the disc, two discourses going on here, and there's an unfortunate gap between the enhancement discourse that people like you and I engage in, and the risk benefit discourse that regulators engage in. Um, and I I'm puzzling these days about how to uh, close that gap a bit. So I think that is a that is a problem with respect to regulation. Um, and I, I so I. Uh, you know, you think about life, so-called lifestyle drugs, right, like Viagra or Modafinil. Um, you know, the, the, yes, they're enhancers in certain ways, mm-hmm. but that's not the basis for their regu- for their management in a regulatory system, right? Uh, the, the question for, the, for regulators uh, is, well, how do they, what are their benefits and what are their risks? Um, so this is, a, this is a conceptual problem that I'm, I'm, as we're talking about it now, honestly, I have to say I'm only you know, now trying to get my arms around this. Um, when you get into the military setting, though, you know, there is this, this notion of military necessity. And military necessity is generally constrained by regulation, but is not always constrained by regulation. Um, uh, there, there are instances in which it's widely agreed that a commander uh, may need to use a substance, um, uh, even though it's not been fully tested, often not fully tested for ethical reasons, uh, in a in a standard clinical trial. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking here, you know, for example, um, of the use of ciprofloxacin uh, for anthrax exposure. Um, this was a challenge that the U.S. FDA faced before those that that notorious anthrax letters incident in October of 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and so, you know, the FDA decided to get ahead of this problem. They, they went to Bayer, actually, and said, well, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to consider Cipro, Cipro your, your big drug, your, uh, your big antibiotic for use in this setting, a national security setting. Um, uh, so um, 
sometimes you you know you can get ahead of a, a problem in the, in the national security setting by in fact compromising what you would pro like to do in the civilian setting which is do a full clinical trial that's 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 really super interesting and and also i mean something i was never aware of would would you would you maybe say a closer collaboration between um national security agencies or even regulators and uh, researchers and scientists could that be something that will help bridge that gap of 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 um you know these terminologies that are kind of understood and discussed in different ways but might probably facilitate uh, 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 coming up with uh, uh, policies for for uh, the use of neurotechnologies in military settings yeah i mean i think I, you know i'm not a i'm not a, a virtue ethicist um but i'm going to sound like one and by virtue ethics i mean the notion that ultimately it's all about the individuals um the individuals morality right Uh, or the eventual science morality, um, but to, but it, it, there is something important about the culture of science that uh, needs to be self-regulating, um, and it, it it it's important not to uh, for for the scientific community not to let itself be so cut off. Let's say you're an individual scientist, right, and you you're offered a a, a, a whole bunch of money by a national security agency um, to do a certain project. Um, It's very important that 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 individual scientist and, and her or his team uh, continue to be part of the larger scientific community, uh, a, a community in which there are uh, there are communal values uh, that are constraints on behavior. Um, I mean, now some labs are better at this than others, right? I've seen, and that very often is due because of the PI, the leader of the lab, uh, who says, "Look, we're you know we're going to do these things, but we don't do these things." Yeah. Um, And I think that I, I think is that is really hard, but I think um, you know the culture of science uh, has value, and it's one of the reasons I'm now worried about you know, sort of cutting off Russia, for example, uh, from culture of science, the international system, uh, um, and which has worried me before about relations with China and Chinese scientists in the West. Um, at the same time, it shouldn't be thought that that. Uh, Military leaders have no values. As a matter of fact, uh, you know the the leaders that I've spoken to uh, are extremely sensitive to these questions. Uh, they they think about the laws of armed conflict, you know, as a as, as professional guidance for them. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, Catherine. By the way, again, a, a, a bit of a side topic, but um, these days when when uh, Western Commanders are are doing interviews or talking about or writing about um, the behavior of uh, of Russians uh, in the Ukraine. They uh, or, or they often characterize it as unprofessional. Right? Yeah. Um, there is a you know, it's kind of, for those of us who have never been in the military, it's unfamiliar. But there there really is a sense of professionalism, at least I think, in the NATO countries and the U.S. Uh, and um, And that sense of professionalism, you know, applies to the side of the scientific community as well as the military community. So I think they 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 can work together, and they can operate as constraints on each other. I can also, you know, imagine that this 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 close collaboration is is at a national level very interesting and probably brings about several advantages. But you know, in in the past few few months, few years, I have seen that. 
this collaboration on an international level. So if a scientist wants to work together with, uh, um, you know, international, uh, uh, international universities, foreign universities, that this is not always taken um, at heart by national security agencies. And of course, I will mention the current news of several American scientists being sued, but also being, you know... Yeah kind of uh, attacked and and yeah Yeah. exactly especially with their ties with you know uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, so especially to to their Chinese uh, ties how how do you um, explain this yeah I mean it's really worrying Um, the the one of the few good news areas in the world these days is science and that's you know because of the the international collaboration that's been established uh, over the last 20 years. Um, so it's, you know, the, 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 this notion that we can simply cut ourselves off, for example, from, um, from, Ch- from Chinese science, uh, uh, I think it's, it's very hard to imagine how we do that anymore. Uh, of course, one could, you know, take a hard line and uh, say, well, we just you know stop uh, allowing people to publish in our journals and so forth. I don't think that's happening. Uh, so, but this is very what looks very much like a red scare uh, uh, is is of great concern to me. Uh, I think it sends a, it sends a horrible message, just as an American, you know, to people who are doing important work in in uh, in science in the U.S. Uh, and. Um, of all all the good people that I know in China, having been there a number of times, talking to people in the life sciences there, um, you know, I, I think it's it's uh, it's abusive uh, to make assumptions like these. Um, at the same time, uh, if there's criminal behavior, of course it must be investigated. What's turned out to be the case so far is that it's been wildly exaggerated. Yeah. Uh, and intellectual, you know, is there intellectual property theft? Absolutely, there is intellectual property theft. Today. You know, at a big scale, uh, and every 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 power has attempted to do that with within their capacity, right? uh, including the U.S. after the Second World War, which learned a lot about products like synthetic rubber uh, by going to the R.G. Farben files in 1945. So, um, there, of course, intellectual property rules need to be respected, um, but um, the, the 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 kind of gross notion that uh, anybody with ties to science in China uh, is uh, some kind of spy is uh, this is I think extremely damaging if you're going to make these kinds of allegations you better have your ducks in a row you better have the evidence and unfortunately the publicity uh, three or four years ago around this uh, got way ahead of the evidence at the same time you know if, if if I'm Francis Collins, and director of the NIH, uh, if the FBI gives me a call, I have to take it seriously, right? Yeah. But law enforcement has to be extremely careful about the way in which they characterize uh, these these efforts. Very, very well said. If we talk about, you know, neurotechnologies or almost anything related to the brain, I think um, we can't, we tend to, you know, 
I would not say exaggerate, but really give it a lot of importance. And of course, this has to do with, you know, the, the, the role the brain has in, 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 in making us who we are. And of course, when we talk okay. about neurotechnologies, we talk about neuro rights, we talk about brain integrity, mental integrity. Now, if I think of military uh, uh, um, uses of neurotechnologies, does does that probably call upon us to think of neurosecurity uh, 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 policies to protect citizens, but probably even to protect soldiers from the implications yes. of dual-use neurotechnology? Right. I mean, uh, you think about what what's going on in terms of um, improved surveillance right now. I mean, I mentioned the enhanced uh, biometrics when I came back through from Europe a few days ago and they just needed a facial scan right and not not my fingerprints or the scan of my passport uh, um, there are new measures of surveillance that are really they're going on through cyber you know, through, through, through the use of social media platforms and so forth uh, that uh, some countries are engaging in uh, that will prob that are partly justified by the pandemic and, and eminently justifiable by the pandemic in terms of tracing and so forth. Uh, but those, those new measures are unlikely to be taken away. Uh, I think, I think we are entering in some countries, a, a, a period of much more intensive surveillance. Uh, now, um, with forget with respect to war fighters, you really have to have to hone in on exactly what, you know, you're talking about. Um, already, already these people are so closely watched, especially if they're in, in something like a special forces uh, setting. They're already so closely watched and, and so carefully monitored. Um, it's not clear exactly what technology would uh, in, intensify that or create n new and different problems. Um, just to think about the genetics database, right? That, that the U.S. has for everybody who's ever served in the armed forces. And I presume that there are uh, biomaterial databases for, uh, for for people who are in the armed forces uh, in uniform in NATO countries as well. There's a, there's a huge store of, you know, of data there mm -hmm. uh, just from biological skills. Um, so I think, you know, before we get ahead of ourselves to uh, worry about neurosurveillance, um, we need to appreciate that there's already so much that we haven't completely grasped uh, that's possible in other forms of surveillance. I I want to end our super interesting conversation with uh, um, a small thought experiment that I that I read a couple of weeks ago on on uh, the 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 Nature blog. So there has been an international security conference that uh, was held and was trying to explore how artificial intelligence, intelligence technologies for drug discovery could be misused for de novo design of biochemical weapons. What was initially a thought experiment evolved into a computational proof. I would love to, to hear your, your, your thoughts on that. So, you know, you, you don't necessarily need AI to do this. Um, in, the, in the late 80s, toward the end of the apartheid regime, uh, into the 90s, there were, there were rumors that the apartheid regime in South Africa was interested in, in creating some kind of new 
biological agent that could be eminently transmissible uh, and very lethal. You know, so somehow tagging uh, the the influenza virus with Ebola, right? Uh, kind of a nightmare scenario for a, a, a biological weapon. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, the the British Medical Society actually published a little paper about this in the late nineties. Um, but uh, I, I so I don't think it's AI certainly uh, makes it a little sexier. Uh, to think of possible combinations. But, you know, if if you're a, a terrorist organization, what you want is something that is really spectacular. Uh, sadly, you know, some this kind of kinetic attack, you know, think about 9-11, uh, or um, the use of a chemical weapon like Novichok for a, to assassinate a specific individual or at least to, to threaten them like Navalny, right? Um, so... Uh, I'm not sure that AI brings anything new to the table in this in this department of uh, of, of terrorism. Um, but but probably the speed to which it it, it it generates it could that probably be a a, uh, a factor? Yeah, perhaps. Uh, but I think it's it's the it is there's certainly the shock and awe the surprise um, the in the acute phase that you know is really of interest. Um, but it, I don't know that mi microbes are not necessarily the best ways of, uh, freaking people out. Right. I mean, in the long run they are, but in, in the short run, it's some kind of very spectacular physical attack, uh, that, uh, you, you know, or think about, or some kind of physical attack in a certain physical, some kind of biological attack or chemical attack in a certain physical setting. Think about the Alm cult, uh, in, uh, in, in Tokyo, right. When, Uh, they, um, they were trying to do biological agents. They didn't have much success with them. So then they went to the sarin, use of sarin gas, but where? Uh, in the subway, right? Yeah. Uh, a very, a very claustrophobic environment. Um, uh, and I, and so there's this combination of the of the nerve attack with something that you know stuff that had been known sarin, sabin, uh, uh, tobin, right? All these these. Uh, These 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 lethal uh, neuro uh, neuro substances uh, in a specific claustrophobic anxiety provoking physical setting, the subway. Um, so I, again, I don't know that AI really changes the situation all that much. Um, it presents another set of options, I guess. But if you're a terrorist organization, again. Um, I'm not sure you're going to be looking to AI, you know, in the in the uh, in in the first instance. Uh, there are lots of ideas out there that that uh, create havoc uh, that don't require such a you know high end approach. What what would be your last message to our audience about um, dual use and neurotechnologies? What would be my last? You know, like a like um, a like a takeaway yeah. message. Is is there something which you think um, are there misconceptions that you want to uh, um, um, you know rectify, or probably you know some some hopeful thoughts for the future? Hopeful thoughts for the future. Um, well, I, I think that this very kind of conversation. 
uh, indicates that there is deep, a great awareness and growing awareness of the possibilities here. Uh, it's in the funded analysis, you know, we have to look at cultures, the culture of the military, the cultures of science, uh, access of people in the wider culture like us to what's going on in those settings, um, and uh, our ability uh, to, to insist that there be a lot of self-awareness about how these new uh, potentials uh, are being used. Um, again, I don't. We haven't done that very well with regard to other technologies. Um, I'm hoping that we do better uh, with neuro neurotechnologies than we have with previous ones uh, that can be misused. Um, you know, I think what worries me more than the specific uh, domain of neurotechnologies is is the potential collapse of a rules-based international order that we'd be, be seeing now. I mean, that is the bigger problem, mm -hmm. right? Because it it's the envelope into which all of this other stuff that we're talking about must fit. Um, so uh, unless we have uh, international processes uh, for um, adopting standards of conduct with respect to any science, including neuroscience, um, you know, then we've got a much bigger problem. And that is the one that preoccupies me right now. Professor Marino, with that, I would like to thank you very much for your time, very much for your insights. Um, um, I want to thank our audience for tuning in. I uh, definitely recommend those that are interested in the topic of neurotechnologies and dual use to go and read your book, Mind Wars. It is, it is very accessible for a non-scientific public. Um, and, and, and I really definitely recommend it. Um, it, it, it offers not only several uh, novel insights, but also a very nice overview about the topic of uh, neuroscience and the military in the 21st century. Um, thank you very much, uh, Professor Marino, um, and see you next time. Thanks, Catherine. Bye-bye.